Hello and welcome to News Hour from the BBC World Service. We're coming to you live from London. I'm James Menendez. And in just a moment, we'll be finding out what Moscow thinks about the two main presidential candidates in the United States and which one they think is the more stable. Also today, the discovery of three new species of mammal. When we started out, we also thought, okay, everybody describes it as one species. And when we saw the first results, we saw, okay, there's more to it because the differences are so large. So large, a bit of a clue. Find out more in 15 minutes' time. Plus, a wife's advice on whether to appear on the hit TV series Strictly Come Dancing. In 20 years' time, when we look back on our lives, do you really want to have turned down going on the biggest show in British television to do something we've always wanted to do, the two of us, learn to dance, to get fit and lose weight, have great fun? It's a great challenge. And I thought, actually, maybe it's one of those times in life where you have to think, let's um, put caution to the wind and have a go. Former British Cabinet Minister Ed Balls on why he decided to hit the dance floor. Uh, That interview coming up in about 40 minutes' time. But first, why are Russia and Donald Trump apparently so close? Once again, the Republican presidential contender has praised the Russian president, Vladimir Putin, while out on the campaign trail. And this was in a question-and-answer session with military veterans, many of whom, of course, will have been active during the Cold War when the Soviet Union was America's mortal enemy. Well, during the exchange, Mr Trump said that President Putin had proven himself to be a better leader than Barack Obama. If he says great things about me, I'm going to say great things about him. I've already said he is really very much of a leader. I mean, you can say, oh, isn't that a terrible thing? He called I mean, the man has very strong control over a country. Now, it's a very different system, and I don't happen to like the system. But certainly in that system, he's been a leader far more than our president has been a leader. We have a divided country. We have a country where you have Hillary Clinton with her emails that nobody's ever seen, where she deletes 33,000 emails. And that's after getting a subpoena from Congress. If you do that in private business, you get thrown in jail. So Donald Trump likes Vladimir Putin and doesn't like Hillary Clinton. And uh, that's another piece of common ground between the two men, because it's becoming very clear that the Kremlin is adamantly opposed to a Clinton administration. Well, that's something discussed on the website Foreign Policy in an article from Moscow by Clinton Ehrlich, an American citizen working at the heart of Russia's foreign policy establishment. He's currently a visiting researcher at the Moscow State Institute of International Relations, which is, and it's important, part of the foreign ministry. So first, why does Moscow like Donald Trump so much? I think that Moscow respects Donald Trump for bucking Republican orthodoxy and advocating realist positions that we haven't seen in the mainstream of American politics before. That He's talking about issues that Moscow itself has been concerned about for decades, and suddenly you have a mainstream American politician who's putting those out and people are paying attention. Uh, are they not worried about his lack of experience, his, uh, his mercurial nature? I don't think that Donald Trump is the ideal person to advocate these things. I think that, in essence, it's actually kind of problematic to have someone who comes off occasionally as unhinged advocating positions that are very serious, and that has been counterproductive. But between a choice of Hillary Clinton, who's a neoconservative, and Donald Trump, who is a mercurial realist, I think that Moscow prefers the latter. Uh, um, And just finally on Donald Trump, I mean, when he was talking last night, I mean, he spoke about a US military build-up. He's talked about reasserting America's global leadership. I mean, to me, those would all seem to be anathema to, to Moscow. I think that that's obsolete thinking, that 
Moscow wants Washington to be a partner. And so if Washington starts pursuing its own interests, then Moscow would welcome the kind of military buildup that would help Washington as a partner with Moscow to pursue common enemies like ISIS. So in essence, uh, they like Donald Trump partly because he's not Hillary Clinton. So what is it about Hillary Clinton that Moscow is so afraid of? I would say everything. They see Hillary Clinton as an ideologue who is wedded to the past, someone who essentially wants to refight the Cold War, and even worse, someone who is personally unpredictable. So they really believe that Hillary Clinton is, is, is less stable, less predictable than Donald Trump. I mean, many people would find that extraordinary. I think that people are buying into a narrative that's been concocted by supporters of Hillary Clinton who say that because she is experienced, she must be stable. And instead, what we see is that her experience demonstrates a record of instability. It demonstrates a record of backstabbing Russia uh, in Libya. It demonstrates that sometimes she breaches diplomatic protocol by storming out of a meeting with Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov. And Based on that, they would prefer the unknown quantity of Donald Trump, who at least has indicated an openness to negotiations and cooperation. Uh, in your article, um, you describe her as, for Moscow, an existential threat. She would threaten the existence of Russia's current government. And I don't think that there's any other way to interpret the words that she's had, comparing President Putin to Hitler picking out words that he used to describe neo-Nazis and then slipping in, uh, in those words to her speeches as sort of a slight at him. And when she describes him as the godfather of essentially everything that America poses, what Russia hears is an, a rationale for deposing President Putin. And it remembers the 2011 elections when she seemed to push for that. Uh, what lengths would the Kremlin go to to prevent a Clinton presidency? It's very dangerous based on absolutely no reliable evidence to claim that Russia's foreign intelligence services are already rigging the American election because it creates a situation where Russia fears that maybe after that election, those accusations are going to be repeated and used as a pretext for serious aggression. This is all a bit of a risky strategy, isn't it, for, for the Kremlin? I mean, Hillary Clinton might well win and they will have to deal with the Clinton administration. It's not a strategy. It's the opinions of an American citizen embedded at a high level in their brain trust. And so I've taken it on my initiative to, to share the fear that I have that Moscow really is disturbed about this. And I think that voters deserve to know it in the United States. And the problem is that people are assuming that because of his personality, that positions Donald Trump advocates are dangerous, when the reality is that the single greatest danger to the world is conflict between America and Russia. And Hillary Clinton has openly declared an intention to fuel that conflict. Um, I have to ask you, I mean, what is an American citizen doing uh, in Moscow, working at the heart of the foreign policy establishment? Well, previously, I was working inside the American foreign policy establishment as a missile defense researcher. And I realized, based on my research, that missile defense was a horrible idea and that America was really risking destabilizing the globe. And those views were not something that I was able to openly share in America. I was sort of maybe blackballed in academia. And so Russia was, was open to my views, and I came here for the intellectual freedom. Some people may say, well, this is putting the Kremlin's point of view. I mean, this is effectively Kremlin propaganda, and you're a useful conduit for that. I mean, what would you, what would you say? 
I would say that if I didn't disclose that I was working inside the foreign ministry, that would certainly be problematic. But people can take my views for what they are, which is that of an independent American citizen and who's talking to their highest level foreign policy experts. Clinton Ehrlich of the Moscow State Institute of International Relations, a visiting researcher there. It's a part of Russia's foreign ministry. To Myanmar now, formerly known as Burma, where the clear-up continues after a powerful earthquake that struck the country just over two weeks ago. The ancient city of Bagan, with its thousands of red-brick pagodas, some of which are more than a thousand years old, is an important Buddhist site and also one of the country's most popular tourist attractions. Many of the temples there were damaged. From Bagan, here's our Myanmar correspondent, Jonah Fisher. It's early morning and the sun is rising here in Bagan with more than 2,000 red-brick Buddhist pagodas and stupas to explore. This is really the must-see destination for people coming to visit Myanmar. This morning, though, it's a bit different. Many of the temples are topped with scaffolding and sheets of tarpaulin because two weeks ago, on the very same day that central Italy suffered a devastating earthquake, Bagan was also shaken. This is the sound of mobile phone footage filmed by Ongjo San. He has a shop at one of the oldest and most popular temples here, Suleimani Pagoda. I was sitting down when the earthquake started, he tells me. Then the quake got stronger and so I came out of my shop. I stood outside and I could see the pagoda shaking. Then I saw the top of it falling down. Incredibly, no one was seriously hurt in Bagan, but more than 400 temples were damaged. Here at Suleimani, there's now a long line of policemen, nuns and volunteers passing buckets of rubble down from the very top of the pagoda uh, to a site at the bottom, ready for the pieces to be sorted. This nun, dressed all in pink, tells me she travelled more than 500 kilometres overnight to come and help. Because it's so far, I will get lots of merit, she says. Building work at Began has been a constant source of controversy. It's always been repaired and changed after quakes. The Burmese see it as an important Buddhist site that needs to function, not just exist as historic ruins. But in the 1990s, things stepped up a gear. Myanmar's military rulers began an ambitious building programme in an attempt both to earn Buddhist merit and to gain public support. More than 600 new pagodas were built using modern techniques and there were ugly additions to the site, like big roads, a golf course and a ghastly viewing tower. It all meant that despite its obvious charm, Bagan was denied world heritage status. UNESCO managed that list, and I caught up with their consultant, Kai Wieser. Some people have called what's happened here as a disnification of the site, that things have been built without any real basis in, in history and archaeology. Do you understand that, that, that description? Um, I wouldn't use those words. Uh, I believe that there was a lot of reconstruction done based on a certain understanding uh, and, uh, and I think there needs to be a certain amount of rectification done over time 
but I think we need to look at this as a living heritage site where things do change over time. We need to establish sort of the, the norms uh, and sort of the acceptable degree of change that we allow within a site like this. There are now encouraging signs that UNESCO and the Burmese authorities are working together. The earthquake has deepened cooperation and Myanmar's de facto leader, Aung San Suu Kyi, has insisted that rebuilding work not be rushed. The days of concrete tops and new pagodas look to be over and a new application to be a World Heritage Site is being prepared. Bagan may be about to finally take its rightful place as one of this planet's great living treasures. And that was the BBC's Jonah Fisher reporting there from Bagan in Myanmar. You're listening to NewsHour from the BBC. And still to come on NewsHour, the US Defence Secretary Ash Carter sounds optimistic about the chances of defeating the so-called Islamic State. I think our plan calls for the envelopment, that is the surrounding and the collapsing of ISIL's control over those two key cities, Mosul and Raqqa, and that envelopment is underway now and will unfold further in the coming months. More on that coming up in about 15 minutes' time. Our other headlines this hour. The Taliban are fighting government forces for control of a regional capital in central Afghanistan. And President Mohamedou Buhari is urging Nigerians to give up behaviour such as dishonesty, corruption and intolerance, which he says is damaging the country. This is James Menendez with NewsHour, live from the BBC. We're going to talk about giraffes now. Instantly recognisable, it turns out there's uh, more to them than meets the eye. It had been thought there was one species of giraffe containing four subspecies. In fact, though, they are all separate species. The findings are published in the journal Current Biology, and one of the researchers is geneticist Dr Axel Janka from the Seckenberg Centre in Germany. The genetic signal that we found in our analyses clearly shows that there are four distinct groups of giraffes. And uh, the genetics shows was also that they don't interbreed, they don't mix. So the northern giraffe that we described new now is genetically distinct from, for example, the reticulated giraffe. This is what a species is. So if they don't interbreed, then we call different animals different species. Is there a sort of a, a level at which the genetic difference is so great that you can call it a different species? Is that how it works? It is not so much a genetic difference, although in giraffes the difference is as large as between polar and brown bear, for example. Really? Uh, really? Yes. That, that different? It is quite different, yeah. They're not as different as human and chimpanzee, but like polar and brown bear is a good example. And, but it's not so much the difference that counts here. It is that each group has a distinct genetic signal. And that would not be the case if these two interbreed and had genetic exchange during the last 500 uh, or 600,000 years since they exist. And now, as a layman, if I were to look at these four different types of giraffe, would, be, would I be able to notice any difference? Well, if you know what to look at, you would. The northern giraffe, for example, has five what we call ossicorns. They're like horns or antlers, but just bone structures. 
That would be one difference. Then the coat pattern, the fur is also different. The four groups, I mean, geographically, do they do they ever come across each other and stay away from each other if they do? So the northern giraffe is in one area and the reticulated giraffe is another area, but they come very close to each other, within a few hundred or hundred kilometres. And this is not a distance that they, that they would keep them apart. So we don't actually know what keeps them apart. There are no obvious geographic barriers. Yeah, it's very interesting. I mean, I'm surprised that no one knew this before, to be honest. Well, we too. <laughs> that makes the, the charm of science. You always find something new. Uh, there's only very little literature about giraffe. Uh, there's much more about rhino and elephants, for example, or lions. Yeah, so uh, when we started out, we also thought, okay, everybody describes it as one species. And we developed markers uh, here at Senckenberg for the Giraffe Conservation Foundation. And when we saw the first results, we saw, okay, there's more to it because the differences are so large. And so essentially, the bottom line is there are three new species now in the world. Exactly. There are three new species. And next time you look at a giraffe, you can't just call it, it's a giraffe. Uh, It's either a northern giraffe or a Maasai giraffe, for example. So don't make that mistake in the future. That was uh, geneticist Dr. Axel Janker speaking speaking to me uh, from Germany. Local election results uh, in Germany at the weekend confirm that anti-immigrant sentiment is on the rise. The right-wing party Alternative für Deutschland, or AFD, had campaigned heavily against Chancellor Angela Merkel's policy of welcoming hundreds of thousands of refugees and other migrants. In the northern state of Mecklenburg-Western Pomerania, the AFD came second, pushing Mrs Merkel's Christian Democratic Union into third place. The state has seen relatively little new immigration, but it is poor, and one of its largest cities, Rostock, has had a troubled history with migrants, as Paul Adams now reports. This is Grosskline, one of the poorest neighbourhoods in Rostock. I'm surrounded by tower blocks where over the years many, many immigrant families have come to live. And it was here just a few weeks ago that the city was forced to shut down a migrant youth centre after protests that threatened to turn violent. It was a very black day. Annette Kob runs the centre. Sending away 15 young Syrians and Afghans, she says, was one of the hardest things she's ever had to do. They say, Annette we are happy in Grosskleim. We live here, we live the flats, we live this area of Rostock, we have friends here, why we must go? For weeks, the youth centre had been the subject of controversy. Right-wing activists whipped up local opposition. The boys were accused of drinking and antisocial behaviour. The situation was increasingly dangerous. Annetta says she still struggles to know exactly what went wrong. I don't know. I think for uh, some people in our neighbours, it was not clear what we do. They see a lot of boys from uh, Syria, Afghanistan, and they say, OK, what is that? The police were heavily involved in keeping the peace. Thomas Laum is chief constable for Rostock and the surrounding area. By the end of 2015, he says, local officials all over Germany were frantically trying to find places to house the wave of refugees entering the country. His department advised against Grosskleim. It was the people living there who were not not satisfied with the migrants uh, there. They, they did not have good reasons for it, but they think as they think. 
Violence never quite broke out in Grosskline, but Lam says he's watching a rising tide of hostility to migrants. Hate crime, especially in social media, uh, Facebook, Twitter and so on. We have crime which was directly against migrants. We had attacks against migrant houses. We had attacks against migrants just walking through the city. Rostock has only had to take a tiny fraction of the new arrivals, but it's not hard to find outright hostility, particularly on the streets of Grosskleim. I don't feel comfortable living in my own country anymore. It's like living in their country, because that's how they treat us here. Some of them I want to stamp on their faces. The others I don't care about. The centre of old Rostock is an extremely picturesque place, but on this sunlit summer afternoon, the city is commemorating one of its darkest hours. It was in a suburb not far from here in 1992 that Rostock saw some of the country's worst post-war anti-immigrant rioting. Asylum seekers were attacked by right-wing extremists, while many local people stood by and cheered. This, the people here today are saying, must not happen again. In the crowd, I bump into Stefan Bockham, Rostock's left-wing deputy mayor. The city, he says, is not the place it was. It's grown up. But as recent events in Grosskline have shown, it's not immune. Never say never is uh, a German saying, but uh, I'm optimistic that uh, such riots won't take place again. But as we know, uh, it is every time possible that a crowd gets together and uh, gets radical and... Um, gets violent and uh, tries to burn houses down. And we saw that all over Germany, except Rostock. So you never know. My mother come to the Deutsch course. And what are the migrants themselves? I'm going to leave the last words to Wadir, a Syrian Christian from Idlib, here with his mother, both of them still learning German. And listen out for his very special way of pronouncing the German chancellor's name. We must understand this. Not all the people love us. And this is normal. We, we thank God for Frau Miracle. Frau Miracle, she is now uh, like uh, the mother for all Syrian. She opened doors for Syrian. Of course, some people in the parliament, some people in the street, they don't like refugee. And this is freedom. We live in freedom city, in Freiheitland, Germany. Do you think this could change? Maybe it will come more difficult, but if the war stops today, I think all the Syrians will go back to Syria. Then the people who don't like us will be a little bit happy. That report from Rostock in northern Germany by the BBC's Paul Adams. You're listening to News Hour. Do stay with us. Much more to come in the next half hour of the programme. Don't go away. Coming up next on Newshour, the US Defence Secretary says so-called Islamic State will be surrounded in months. But is he right? But first, our regular look at the world of business and today Formula One, because the American media giant Liberty Media has confirmed it's buying the company that runs the sport. It's paying nearly $4.5 billion for a minority stake and promises a full takeover if regulators approve the deal. Its chief executive, Bernie Eccleston, will stay on. So what does the deal mean for the sport? I'm joined by Ian Parks, chief Formula One correspondent for Autosport website. Ian, many thanks for joining us here on NewsHour. Is this good news or bad news for Formula One, do you think? Good afternoon, James. Yes, thank you. Um, generally, it is uh, a, a very it is very good news 
uh, for Formula One. You have to bear in mind that for the past 10 years, uh, Formula One has been run by a private equity equity firm, um, CBC Capital Partners. Uh, Many people would view CBC as having done very little for the sport, and instead they have taken a considerable money out of it. When you look at Liberty Media and what they can offer in terms of its background, in terms of media, communications and entertainment, uh, that is viewed definitely as a positive going forward for the sport over the next few years. Um, some people have said, well, they are an entertainment uh, company and perhaps that will mean more in, in terms of TV exposure. But in, it, will they do anything for, for the actual sport, do you think? Um, the only thing they can really do for the actual sport is trying to take it into new markets, new areas. Formula One already does reasonably well in the Asian market, for instance. But again, there are certain other doors that it could open over there. In particular, Formula One has struggled to break the American market. It's something Bernie Eccleston uh, has tried in the past to do on many occasions. I mean, we have a race right now in Austin that's very successful. Um, But at the moment, Bernie would definitely like races on the East and West coasts. Um, And Liberty Media could definitely open doors in that respect. Um, And Bernie Eccleston staying on, uh, is that a good thing? Or or will that hold the the sport back if um, some of the old firm are still in charge? I don't think so in this instance. Bernie, you know, has been involved in this sport for just over 40 years now. And you have to remember, his contacts are extensive. Uh, He knows how to broker a deal. And for now, Liberty Media needs that expertise uh, on their side for them to eventually progress the business once Bernie either, heaven forbid, passes away or obviously uh, decides to step down at some point. It has been suggested um, that he only has a three-year contract. Um, That has not been officially confirmed um, in what came out from Liberty Media yesterday. But most definitely he's staying on as chief executive Uh, certainly for the foreseeable future. We'll have to leave it there. But Ian, many thanks. That was Ian Parks, Chief Formula One correspondent uh, at Autosport website uh, on that uh, purchase by Liberty Media of the company uh, that runs Formula One motor racing. This is NewsHour from the BBC. I'm James Menendez. The US Defence Secretary Ash Carter has told the BBC that he expects the so-called Islamic State group to be confined to its two strongholds in Syria and Iraq within months. Mr Carter said the plan was to surround IS in Raqqa in Syria and Mosul in Iraq and eventually move to finish off the group altogether. Here's what he told the BBC's Sarah Montague a little earlier today. Our campaign against ISIL, which is waged by a large coalition, the United States leads that coalition, but other countries, including the United Kingdom, play a very strong role there, has three elements. The first is to destroy ISIL in Iraq and Syria, both because that is the parent tumor of the cancer of ISIL. And both the fact and the idea of an Islamic state based upon its ideology needs to be destroyed there. And at the same time, we need to do the same wherever this has metastasized or spread. For example, Libya, 
and Afghanistan. And then finally, we all need, and we work together very closely in this regard, to protect our own people and our protect our own homelands back here at home. So those are the elements of it. I'm confident we will succeed. It's difficult. It takes a lot of time. But both in Iraq and Syria, that's where it begins. We've been taking specific steps over the last nine months to carry out our campaign plan. Uh, it has gone exactly as planned and continues to go exactly mm. uh, as planned for the envelopment of Mosul and Raqqa. Okay, and and that timetable, there's a suggestion from, well, it wasn't a suggestion, Turkey's president said that President Barack Obama had floated the idea of joint action against Raqqa, which would suggest it would be happening within the next couple of months. Well, we certainly have joint action with Turkey, which is a member of the coalition and does a great deal, including hosting a number of the aircraft that are involved in the air campaign. Right now, we're working with Turkey to help it secure the last remaining part of the border between Turkey and Syria on both sides of the border, which has been one of the avenues, the arteries through which ISIL has supplied itself with foreign fighters, with equipment, and so forth. And we are working with Turkey in that respect. At the same time, we're working with the Syrian Democratic Forces in a plan to envelop and collapse ISIL's control over Raqqa. We have worked with that group also in Manbij City, which is, was an mm. important city, and we intend to work with both of these parties. They have their differences with one another. We understand that. So what, Um, by the time President uh, Obama leaves office, which will be within months, what will be the situation? Can you say that ISIL, Islamic State Group, will have been defeated in Syria? I think our plan calls for the envelopment, that is the surrounding and the collapsing of ISIL's control over those two key cities, Mosul and Raqqa. And that envelopment is underway now and will unfold further in the coming months. American Defense Secretary Ash Carter. So is he right or is IS more robust than he suggests? I'm joined by Shashank Joshi, Senior Research Fellow at the Royal United Services Institute think tank here in London. Shashank, good to have you with us here, here on NewsHour. I just wonder, first of all, what he means by envelopment. Is that just surrounding those two cities? Well, I think he's very carefully trying to avoid putting himself in a position where he is committed to the destruction of ISIS in those places by January, which is, of course, when Obama leaves office. Um, And he's keen to give himself wiggle room. So um, if ISIS haven't been expelled from those places, but their supply lines into those towns are cut, people are leaving the city in droves, they are surrounded and contained, I think that will counter success for this administration. They may have bigger aspirations than that, but I think if they say any more than that, they are setting themselves up for failure in a campaign where they have been criticised for years for proceeding too slowly anyway. And is that uh, timescale of uh, within months realistic for that goal? It, I think it is. Um, although, let's be careful, we're talking about two completely different places here. Raqqa is, is a small town. It's ISIS's headquarters in Syria. And uh, Kurdish forces have been making significant advances under the umbrella of the Syrian Democratic Forces, the SDF. 
which is a term designed to hide the fact that they are just really Kurds. Um, but, but that's more plausible. Uh, Mosul in Iraq is a much, much bigger city. It's in northern Iraq. Uh, the seizure of Mosul two years ago was what marked ISIS's rise. And I think Iraq has a completely different set of conditions. There are more ground forces. There are Shia militias backed by Iran. There are Iraqi security forces. There's a more overt American role on the ground. But it's a much bigger challenge. It's a much bigger city. So it's possible that we will see progress on one, but not in the other. There's not just a blanket wave across both at once. Uh, I, I mean, on Mosul, I mean, is it possible to retake Mosul without causing huge numbers of casualties and huge amounts of damage? I think it's it's inevitable we'll see uh, quite a lot of serious urban fighting. And we did, of course, see towns like Manbij in northern Syria fall uh, to Kurdish forces with uh, surprisingly low levels of urban destruction and, and civilian damage. But of course, those were tiny places. Mosul's bigger. It has much bigger suburbs. Um, and of course, the ethnic geography of, of Aleppo, um, Mosul's different. It's a much more mixed city. It's a Sunni majority city, but you will see Shia militias playing a very prominent role in its retaking. And so it's not not just the inevitable destruction of urban warfare, but also this ethnic, uh, sorry, sectarian dimension where Shia forces uh, perhaps displace or commit atrocities against Sunni civilians, which which is to some extent inevitable. Um, and that's going to cause huge tensions within Iraq as well. The problem really, though, isn't taking it. They can do that, although perhaps not by January. Uh, the trouble is keeping it. Who's going to police it? Uh, which Iraqi forces? Is it the Shia militias or is it Iraqi security forces? And I think the problem is really uh, not just grabbing its holding. Uh, and just one final thought, uh, going back to Raqqa. To what extent is the, is the push for, for that city being hampered by this conflict? I mean, you mentioned the SDF, mainly Kurdish force. Uh, this conflict uh, between the Americans relying on that force and, and Turkey obviously being very unhappy about the presence of Kurds in those areas. I think uh, substantially, and I think the Americans have been keen to say they're supporting Turkey's operations uh, in this uh, border area. But of course, what it does mean is the Kurds have been pushed back east. The Turks have never wanted them to go west of the Euphrates. They have done. The Americans, especially Joe Biden two weeks ago, said to the Kurds, go back or we won't support you. Um, but of course, we all know the Turks themselves, and this is what the message hidden between the lines in Ash Carter's interview just then, he's saying effectively the Turks are not going to be our partners in Raqqa. They're not going to go all the way south to Raqqa. They're not interested in that. They're interested in keeping the Kurds out. But the effect is it makes life harder for the Syrian democratic forces, the Kurdish groups, uh, to eventually fight in Raqqa. So it probably has created some complications for American strategy. And of course, the Americans now only have a few months to resolve that before there's a complete change in administration, hopefully towards sanity rather than insanity. Indeed. Thanks so much for that. That was Shashank Joshi, a senior research fellow at uh, the Royal United Services uh, Institute. Now, they say all political careers end in failure, and the British politician Ed Balls is a good example of just how brutal things can be. For years, he was one of the big beasts of the Labour Party that governed the UK for 13 years. A close ally of Gordon Brown, he was a cabinet minister under his premiership and one of the government's leading advisers on economic policy when Tony Blair was prime minister, and well known for his uh, uncompromising style. But last year, that all came to an end when, to the surprise of everyone, including him, he lost his parliamentary seat to the Conservatives. Well, since then, he's been busy writing a book, as many do, about the lessons he's learned from his political career and also donning the sequence to take part in the BBC's hugely popular show Strictly Come Dancing. Well, I've been talking to Ed Balls and I asked him first why people seem to be so disillusioned with their politicians right now. Well, I think there are some deep 
underlying sort of economic events which have been happening in the last 20 years. Aside from the financial crisis, you've also had a squeeze on people's incomes, not just at the bottom, but in the middle of the income distribution, technology making it harder for people in ordinary jobs to see their pay rising. And then globalisation has also meant movements of people on a much bigger scale than any of us expected. Now, politicians were there to keep the stability of the economy, and there was a financial crisis. They were saying, we'll make you better off. People haven't become better off. They were saying, we'll manage globalisation. David Cameron, our Prime Minister before, said, I'll get migration down to the tens of thousands, and it didn't happen. So in those circumstances, well, when mean, people but, are under but, pressure, but, they turn around and say, well, what are these politicians up to? Why haven't they got and, a grip? And not just politicians. I mean, like, Labour was there to try and mitigate some of those effects and to stop that inequality growing. That is true. And um, we didn't succeed, and we didn't succeed in matching people's expectations for what we could do, although that might have sometimes been because we weren't clear enough with people about how difficult it was and the limitations on what we could achieve. But if you take the issue of migration, which I mentioned, we as the Labour government in 2004 said we would not have transitional controls on migration from Eastern Europe because we thought the numbers who would come would be small. That was a mistake analytically because the numbers were big. Politically, it was a very big mistake because people were very cross with us. That carried on through the election to the Conservatives as well. But absolutely, people's scepticism about politicians in part stems from our inability to foresee and then handle those events. Thinking about politicians needing to appear like human beings and to be honest about the the people they Mm. are, you have a stammer Mm. and yet... You didn't really say anything about it to quite late on in your career. I mean, was it embarrassment? Was it fear of criticism from other people? Well, I didn't find out I had any kind of real speech problem until after I was selected as a Member of Parliament. And it was only after I was a Cabinet Minister age 41 that I finally found out this thing I had was in fact a stammer. All the advice to me was that being public about it would take the pressure away. And for two years, you're absolutely right. I didn't think that was possible. And I would say, I can't tell people about Even this. Even in the face of, in the Houses of Commons, people taking the yep. mickey out I of thought, you. I mean, they were teasing you openly in Parliament, weren't they? And I thought that to admit that would be a problem. And then there was a key moment where I realised I was making a mistake. And once I started to talk publicly about it, it had a huge impact, not only on perceptions of me and stammering, but also on how much I, I stammered. It didn't make it go away, and I still had bumps along the road, but it definitely made things better. I've talked a lot about stammering since publicly. I was asked at the weekend whether if I had known that I had a stammer, could that have stopped me going into politics as an MP in the first place? And I said to the conference, I don't know, but I think it might have done. And I think my life shows that would have been a terrible mistake. So... My message is if you want to be a cabinet minister or a singer or a TV presenter or whatever you want to do in life, a teacher, you should never let the fact you've got a stammer get in the way. I just want to finish up asking about uh, one strand of your new career as a dancer on TV, as part of Strictly Come Dancing. Many people around the world will be familiar with these shows. Celebrities, people in the public eye learn how to dance. It's just getting underway. I just wonder why you decided to do it. Well, I said to... uh, my wife, who's still a member of parliament in the spring, that I'd been offered this, and I thought I was going to say no. And she said, 
in 20 years' time, when we look back on our lives, do you really want to have turned down going on the biggest show in British television to do something we've always wanted to do, the two of us, learn to dance, to get fit and lose weight, have great fun? It's a great challenge. And I thought, actually, maybe it's one of those times in life where you have to think, let's um, put caution to the wind and have a go. Uh, he may have to regret that. We'll see how it goes. So the show gets underway properly in the next uh, couple of weeks. Uh, you're listening. That was Ed Balls, by the way. You're listening to News Out from the BBC World Service. Hundreds of millions of people in South Asia depend on meltwater from the Tibetan plateau in China for their livelihoods. But there are dangers, and those dangers, it seems, are increasing. In July, one town in Nepal, close to the Chinese border, was completely washed away by a flash flood. Scientists say the chances of catastrophic flooding downstream are growing as glaciers and permafrost in Tibet start to melt. But the authorities in Nepal and northeast India say they're getting very little advance warning of floods. They want China to give them that information. Our environment reporter Navin Singh Khadka has just been to the worst affected town in Nepal called Liping. The entire town has been wiped out. It's a ghost town now. Nobody lives there. Uh, you can see pictures, you know, buildings precariously perched on the cliffs. And that is the main town. But then downstream, there are other towns, a similar picture with lesser degree, but people living with this fear of what might happen. And there are rumors like, OK, uh, so many lakes might burst out. And then again, this will be a, another big catastrophe and will be wiped out. So as a result, these people in the night, they climb 100, 200 meters up on the mountain to sleep and then come back the next morning just to make sure that the houses are okay. Uh, and just to be clear, this is something that's getting worse because of climate change? As we know, Tibet is known as the water tower of the world. So many glaciers, uh, glacier lakes, it stores huge volume of water, and also Asia's uh, major river systems, Brahmaputra, uh, uh, Mekong, Salween in Southeast Asia, they all originate there. Now climate change is further accelerating the meltdown of the glaciers and permafrost. And worse yet, earthquakes. Earthquakes rattle this place very frequently. You have landslides blocking rivers, lakes behaving weirdly. And these combinations of things, they have increased the risks. And Nepal uh, is on the front line of that, also parts of India. Uh, and so what do they want from the Chinese? They want, what, more information about what's going on on the other side of the border? Officials have told us there is no communication between China and Nepal. Uh, as far as India is concerned, there is some arrangement that China needs to pass on some information during monsoon floods. But again, Indian officials were saying they're not getting enough information and they were not getting key information regarding the release of water. Now, this is a bit different story from what we talked earlier. This is about dams being built on those rivers now. So what the Indians fear is the dams might withhold the water or even the waters might be diverted elsewhere. But even more dangerous is if the waters are released all of a sudden, that is another source of flood. So that's what Indian officials tell me, that this data of water is not being shared with us and we are living with fear. So essentially some sort of early warning system or at least to know what's going on. Why are the Chinese being so secretive? Why won't they share that information, especially when lives are at stake? For this story, the Water Resources Ministry in Beijing did not uh, respond to our, our requests for information. But uh, some authorities in Tibet told us that they do share some information with India and Bangladesh, and they could do the same with Nepal if the Water Resources Ministry in Beijing instructs them to do so. Uh, what Chinese say normally is they will take care of downstream countries. They will take care. But what you need to understand is 
Tibet is a super sensitive issue for China politically. We know that. Also, you know, it's a remote place. But then having said that, uh, you might not be able to monitor each and everything. That is also true. But equally true is China is heavily involved now in mining and damming and so on and so forth of that area. So uh, there are apprehensions, mainly in terms of water resources. There are apprehensions downstream that is this about diverting water uh, towards the parched north where they will be needing water in the future. So the flow of information is not there and that is fueling all the speculations, fear and so on and so forth. But for now, it's the early flood warning that has to be in place. Navin Singh Kadka. Indian weddings are often long, colourful affairs. They can last for days. And for the first time, a startup is offering foreign tourists a chance to take part. A $50 a day ticket gives you access to the dancing, the ceremony, and the food. But does all this cheapen the special occasion? The BBC's Divya Arya reports. Music and dance the perfect start to a traditional Indian wedding. Except this one has some strangers on the dance floor. Hi, I'm Rubia. <laughs> Thank you so much for inviting us. It's so kind of you. Yes. Hi, I'm Leigh. Rubia from Australia and Leigh from Spain are not related to or even friends with the bride or groom. In fact, they've paid to be here. A new startup has set up a website where tourists can buy tickets to attend weddings. And the elaborate experience includes getting your hands painted with henna. Is this the first time you're getting henna? Yes, uh, the very first time. And it's quite ticklish and impressive. The artwork is really nice. Um, I'm actually very, very, very impressed. (laughs) So an hour later, after getting the henna put, you've stepped into the balcony now and are rubbing your hands vigorously. We're doing the best we can. Well, we took it off because it fell in our food. And their hosts are Nitin and Namrata. There has to be a lot of planning put in and there has to be a support of... One of the first couples to sell tickets via the new startup. She just called me up one day and then said, uh, let's do this, it looks like a good idea. And then to convince everyone around, they were like, how can you trust people? They can be some crazy person who's coming. But then we had to trust them. Namrata and Nitin have made about $400 from the ticket sales. But that doesn't go far when you're paying for things like food and transport. Giving them the experience is more exciting. Even my family were excited about it, to have some uh, a foreign person in our wedding. And as the celebrations move from dancing to the wedding ceremony, there is a new set of tourists. Luke, who's come all the way from New Zealand, and Neve and James from Ireland. Thought that you know we stick out like sore thumbs, or we'd be an intrusion. So it's it's, it's nice that we, we're not. So. It's kind of hard to be an intrusion when there's so many people. What do you think of the crowd? Yeah, so many people. Back in Ireland, 200 would be a massive wedding. So yeah, it's crazy that there's a thousand people here. Finally, it is time for the bride and groom to exchange garlands of white flowers and become man and wife. It's amazing, yeah. He looks like a king, you know, from a, yeah. from another age. Yeah. Well, he's wearing this really nice white silk cloth wrapped around his legs and his chest, and she's wearing the golden orange, sort of yeah. dazzling uh, yeah, it's silk Yeah, it's real gold, is it? Yeah, yeah. Much more colour, much more yeah. vibrant. Yeah, um, and it's, it feels much more free. You can walk around. Uh, well, I think I believe Western Winners are much more formal. Everybody has a has a set table. They sit down in their sit areas. But while they've enjoyed themselves, would these travellers like the idea of people they didn't know 
coming to their own weddings? I think just, yeah, I'm not sure if it would be the same in a, at a wedding in New Zealand, but it's a, like, especially in my family, we're very small. You know, there's only 50 people, then, yeah, getting a, a whole lot of strangers in there. But. <laughs> so it is an idea that's clearly not for everyone. But if this business takes off, weddings may not just be a big social occasion, but for some, a way to earn money too. Divya Arya reporting there. And that brings us to the end of this edition of NewsApp. From me and the rest of the team here in London, thanks for listening. Bye-bye.